Trigger warning. This podcast discusses themes centered around emotional, physical, and sexual violence. While the stories of the survivors are meant to be inspiring and informative, listener discretion is advised. If you are struggling with any of the aforementioned issues, links to resources can be found in the show notes of today's episode. But that coercion as well was was very much so there. If you tell anyone, we'll both go to jail, you're complicit in this. She would tell me things like, you're the man in this relationship, so you need to protect me. And then when my daughter came about, it was um, it was even more so because obviously the love of my daughter trumped in everything. So um, it was weaponizing that sort of, you're, you're a parent in this, you know, you need to, yeah, that, it sort of, um, uh, deepened those ways of thinking. Hi, survivors. I'm Tara Newell. And I'm Collier Landry, and this is the Survivor Squad Podcast. Yay, another episode. A heavy one, though. Oh, yes. A really, a very heavy episode. Well, it's Survivor Squad, right? This is what you guys want. You want the the, the heavy stuff, so we'll, we'll give it to you. But on a lighter note, Tara, we got some reviews in that you want to share. Yes, so we're going to mention two in particular, a good one and uh, one that's four stars, but also gives me some criticism. How do you how do you know it's you, though? Because I remember talking about how people at country festivals. Yes, yes, yes. So so go ahead and say go ahead and say it without giving it away. Okay, so at first of all, at country festivals, I'm always used to people returning your phone at EDM concerts and other concerts that I've been to. Unfortunately, that hasn't been the same. My phones have gotten stolen there. I've been a very well-versed person in both, but let's get to the reveal. Okay. So this person did four stars. Raves and mosh pits are actually full of caring people. You made a comment as it country music concerts are full of lovely people and raves are not. Please stop the stereotyping when clearly you have never been. There are bad and good in all groups of people. In every mosh pit I have experienced, I have only been treated with respect. Please avoid this. That is a word for you, Collier. Divisiveness. This divisiveness. Yes. Portrayal of other music genres. Four exclamation points. Okay. Got it. So, all right. So just to be very clear. um, So you, when I asked you about this today, I sent the review over and you sent me back photos of you from like 10 years ago and you were clearly at what raves right together as one that was in 2011 i went to uh edc one year in vegas when they brought it over in vegas i went to yeah. monster massive i've been to beyond wonderland i've been to what uh, some warehouse ones i've been to bottle rocket i've been to edc <laughs> i've been to I, I guess what we were saying is I, I myself, and I think you are included, are lovers of all musical genres and yes. love all of those things. Now, um, I have never lost. Yes, actually, I have lost a phone. I lost a phone. I was filming. I was working with The Offspring at 
the um, at the Orange County Fair. This was a few years ago. I was working with the Offspring, and I lost my phone. It was the last time that I had a Google phone. It was before I got an iPhone. Oh my gosh! And I lost my Google, whatever the hell it was. It was the Google brand phone, and I was freaking out just because it had all my info in it, and I was and I was taking notes about the concert for the video, and I was like, oh, you gotta be kidding me and somebody returned it. I have had very positive experiences in all the, because I've shot so many concerts. I've been in so many concerts as a performer. I have fantastic things to say about concerts, <laughs> so. I've had lovely experiences at raves a lot. I've also had incredibly horrible experiences at raves. I have had surprisingly just good experiences at country concerts and you know that's just my experience i do love everyone every type of music i have uh friends that are actually djs in the genre too of edm mm -hmm. um and sometimes i'll go see them and we'll include pictures on the patreon too for people to see pictures on the patreon so let me get to reading this other review which is a five-star review from love to research this is from june 24th it says i'm i am binge listening to this wonderful podcast i do not know collier's story but want to find his documentary you can find it in my store collierlandry.com forward slash store I listened to Real Crime Profile and Crime Analyst and have heard about Tara's story. I love that Tara asks, quest asks, asks questions about words Collier says she does not know. I don't always know, know them either. <laughs> so, well, thank you so much, Love to Research, for your wonderful... And thank you to our other uh, four-star review. Uh, sorry that you felt uh, ostracized big word there you go <laughs> ostracized yes what does that mean uh you, you know like um cast aside or or shamed or like if you're ostracized you're excluded you know so when you're ostracized you're excluded uh so we weren't trying to exclude or ostracize anyone any members of our audience because we love music of all kinds and i if you guys don't know i have a uh i i went to school for music and i actually studied opera so and classical music so i love all kinds of music but anyways so tara we have a guest today from australia the land down under yes well i want to first thank madeline heather for connecting us with harrison she's the one that recommended us connected us all together and harrison has an incredible story and he is doing a lot of amazing things today to fight the narrative and Bring a lot of education towards sexual assault and yeah pedophiles so we'll get into his story it's it's very harrowing as he says absolutely so um yeah let's get into it Harrison, thank you so much for joining us today. You have an incredible story. Why don't you start to tell us a little bit about your story? Of course, and thank you both so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, so my story is that I am a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. I was um, sexually abused by my stepmother uh, from the ages of 13 to 16. 
and that happened every single day before and after school. And uh, actually, when I was 15, she fell pregnant to my daughter, who I had to pretend was my sister for many, many, many years after because, um, yeah, I had to avoid any sort of violent attacks from another certain family member. So I stayed quiet for many, many years. And then when I was 19, um, my stepmother decided to flee Australia, uh, where I'm from, and head to her home country at the Philippines with my daughter as well. So I haven't seen my daughter since. And um, yeah, after they fled, uh, I was obviously grieving the loss of my daughter and um, was, although she didn't pass or anything, but she was taken away from me. I was grieving the loss in that sort of sense. And I was also coming to terms with the fact that um, what I went through was actually abuse. I didn't, I couldn't comprehend that that was abuse. Um, I didn't think of my perpetrator, my stepmother, as a, as a pedophile. I didn't think of her in that context. I thought she was um, my partner and I thought I was in love with her. So I was grieving the sort of loss of my own child, but also the loss of my childhood. So it was a bit of a complex time when I was sort of 19, 20. And that's when I went to a mental health facility. I was admitted to a rehab because I was suicidal. I didn't want to be here anymore. And I went through that process and came out um, uh, came out with uh, you know tools to navigate that sort of harrowing uh, part of my life. And um, yeah, since then I've been pursuing advocacy. So it's been a, I want to make sure that people don't experience a tenth of what I've had to experience. So yeah, that's what drives me to keep going. Mm, so you said that, that uh, can you can you take a sort of through how all this happened in your eyes, like how this woman came into your family, you said she's your stepmother, the whole the whole sort of scenario. Yeah, of course. I'll, I'll paint a bit bigger sort of a picture with it. So my mother and father um, were divorced when I was a 10 when I was, sorry, when I was 10. And, um, and I didn't see my father for many, many years after that divorce. It was very messy. And, um, I got to a point where I started high school, um, which in Australia is seventh grade. Um, and so I was 12 at the time and I was really, really longing for my father or some sort of father figure. And I didn't have many men in my life growing up. Um, my grandfather had passed away earlier and um, so he was sort of the only option. So I decided to reach out and uh, yeah, when I was in the eighth grade, sorry, I reached out to him. So I was 13 at this point and we started hanging out and that relationship went really, really well. Um, he was taking me to the gym and was just, that was our thing at that time. And it was really positive and it was nice to have sort of a father figure. And then... Um, yeah, by this point, my dad was already remarried to this woman uh, from the Philippines. And initially, I didn't think much of her. She was quiet and reserved. And um, I just thought, oh, that's dad's partner. I didn't think anything else of her. And um, yeah, so that relationship with my dad got so, you know, ended up being so good. And it was something I was really longing for that I ended up moving in with him and my stepmom. And, you know, about a month or so in, less than a month maybe, um, she invited me to, she invited to take me to the movie. So I thought, oh, she just wants to be like, that's cool stepmom. Like she wants to take her partner's son out. So I said, yeah, sure. 
and we went to the movie theater and then that's when sort of the grooming all happened, like the physical sort of touching happened and um, it sort of grew from there into a more explicit relationship where I was a 13-year-old boy. Um, but with the benefit of hindsight, I now understand that my stepmother, being the predator she is, um, saw that my parents' divorce drive this sort of my parents were so focused on on hitting each other um not to like in a sort of in the divorce um that i was an afterthought uh, and my stepmother saw an opportunity to prey on a vulnerable child that was longing for a sort of love from his parents and in this weird twisted way she was a parent that provided that love but with the gradual processes of grooming um yeah went from just touches to eventually yeah a full sort of sexual encounter do you feel that most of the time these perpetrators are above you in a sense like they have like you know where you were the a younger boy and she was a set mom do you think that there's like a sense of power not power but like yeah I higher up in a sense. Yeah, like I think there is a real power dynamic. Um, but I think that perpetrators are so skilled. They're experts in their field when it comes to this. Pedophiles are experts in their field. They know exactly what they're doing. And um, uh, she weaponized her sort of femininity and her motherly sort of instinct to make me feel loved and made me feel like I was complicit in it. And... Um, made me feel as though, yeah, I was this participating party, which at 13 years old, you there's no way you kept it. Um, so, yeah, that's that's where the grooming comes into place and the sort of, it's almost like a gaslight of making you think you're a part of it as well. And, um, yeah, you hear that from a lot, of, a lot of survivors of child sexual abuse. They say they feel a real sense of guilt and shame because they felt like they were a part of it. And they feel like they can't talk of it about it because they were a part of it. So, um, yeah, that was there is a real power dynamic in that sense. Yes. So the manipulation is something where they're trying to make you complicit, like you're complicit yeah. in it. So it's like, yeah. hey, buddy, like, was there a lot of? It's just you and me. Like this is our secret. All yeah. the typical stuff. What it, what was that like? Yeah, there was definitely that sort of language and those sort of things said to me for sure. Um, but also the fact that she, the perpetrator, she was a woman and I was a young boy, played into when I was 13, I was obviously just started going through puberty, hormones are through the roof. I it played into that sort of instinct. Like when this was happening to me, I thought I was in the, a relationship and I thought I was the absolute king of the world because I had an older woman interested in me. Um so that sort of hormonal thing came into play as well. And, you know, just, um, uh, but that coercion as well was, was very much so there. If you tell anyone, we'll both go to jail, you're complicit in this. She would tell me things like, you're the man in this relationship, so you need to protect me. And then when my daughter came about, it was, um, it was even more so because obviously the love of my daughter trumped in everything. So, um, it was weaponizing that sort of you're you're a parent in this, you know, you need to 
yeah, that it sort of um, uh, deepened those ways of thinking. Yeah. yeah. Did she say any sob stories in the beginning to try to get you like attached to her and make you feel bad for her? Yeah, 110%. Um, and she continually told me throughout um, the period that it happened that, you know, my father was uh, abusive to her as well, which my father was abusive to me. So it's not that hard to believe. Um, but she would tell me extensively that things were happening to her. And it just further sort of entrenched this hatred I had for my dad because I looked at him like he was he was taking um, her love away from me. So it created that sort of jealousy dynamic. It was this really, really strange situation. And um, uh, yeah, that was that was continued. And there were sub stories that were told in the beginning as well to sort of get me on board. And and then um, yeah, it was it was just a full planned out like it seemed planned out um but as i said before just to reiterate the point um yeah pedophiles and perpetrators of this sort of crime they're they know exactly what they're doing they're experts in coercion they're experts in manipulation and um yeah it, it, that came across and i just wish that um you know uh, people were more educated on the subject. I know it's such a child sexual abuse is such a difficult thing to speak about. It's so harrowing, and you know, to even think about it is is a really tough thing for people to do. But um, what I try to do with sort of my work and my advocacy is make people understand that that discomfort that you're feeling is necessary for progress. And um, yeah, it's really important that people get comfortable with the uncomfortable. So when when she got pregnant, how, how how did that play out, and and how did she explain that to your father? Was she saying it's her, it's his child, or how did that work? Yeah, so I was fifteen. I remember being on the bus home from school. Um, my father and her were in Thailand. They were just on a holiday together. Um, and she got a, a like she found out over there. Um, she told him that it was his, like because the thing is as well, he actually had a vasectomy, um, which adds it's just another strange thing to add to the whole story. But after he um, had kids with my mother, he had a vasectomy. Um, but he still, I think his own ego just couldn't fathom that. Um, she'd gone behind his back and fell pregnant. So he just believes the narrative that it was his daughter. Um, and she played into that. She told, she told my father that it was his child. She told me that it was my child. So she had both of us on a sort of hook. And, um, yeah, as I said, I remember being on a bus home from school when I was 15. It's in my uniform. I got a text. I'm pregnant. And I just remember freaking out on the bus. I couldn't even. How do you navigate yeah. that? Um, yeah. uh, so many thoughts rushing through my head. Um, but then, then again, was coerced and uh, told that, you know, you need to provide for us, you need to protect us. And, um, you know, uh, I became as a thinking at the time that um, 
and I still think this, I want I want to be a father to my daughter that my father never was for me. I, I want to be a, a prime example of what it is to be a good parent. Um, yeah, and I sort of got the rule book on how not to parent, so I just have to do the exact opposite of what they did, I guess. But yeah, yeah. How did she say that you were supposed to provide for them? I, I, I think a it was a 15 year old child. I don't understand. Yeah. yeah but it, it, <sighs> it, it play, Collier plays into that whole manipulation and coercion thing. And yeah, it was like, I remember I would take, uh, like I remember 15, I was working, was I working in like a fish and chip shop or something like that. And I'd, yeah, I'd spend my money on, baby wipes and baby formula and bring it home and yeah I'd take I'd take my daughter out for for days and stuff like that which I love doing but um yeah it was it was part of it it was all part of the coercion and the manipulation did she ever try to sit down and formulate a plan with you as though hey uh, we're gonna run away together we're gonna live this beautiful life yeah yeah, that was that was very often. Often it was promised to me, and um, I think that's what kept me in the loop. Um, I remember, you know, there was a after my daughter was born, I went on a trip to the Philippines with my dad, my stepmom, and the newborn baby to show the newborn baby to her side of the family over there. Um, I was, yeah, sexually abused while I was over there. Um, by her and then there was another sort of friend of an auntie um that i i don't know where she is now but she slept she was 30 when i was 16 she slept with me as well so another person pursued a different person pursued me while i was over there and um and then so my stepmother saw that as me cheating on her and then developed this whole story and told me that i was a cheater and i kind of access to Hannah. So that's when I finally moved out and uh, and lived with my grandmother. And that's how I got out of living with um, my stepmother. And that's why the sexual abuse stopped when I was 16. Um, that was the end point. When you were able to get out of it in that sense, like get out of that environment, did all these thoughts start running through your head like is this right um am i going through something no never never in a million years i thought i was complicit in it i thought i was a part of it i thought i knowingly did what i did um it wasn't till you know 19 when i told my mother for the first time after they fled the country and i said this is what i was in a relationship with my stepmother she said that's not a relationship and then that's when i got intensive therapy and, you know, went to the mental health facility and, you know, they worked me through all, all these sorts of issues and made me realize what really happened. When you told your mom, were you scared to at first? I feel like sometimes it's scary to yeah. tell someone what's going on. Yeah, for sure. And um, I think I came from a, a place, not my mother, but I came from like people like my father and myself. They were all very reactive. They would react to every minute situation. Everything was an ordeal and everything was a massive blow up. So um, I was scared that that was everyone. And I was scared 
that I would, if I ever came forward, I would put my, not because, um, I thought if I ever came forward, I would put my daughter's life in jeopardy. Um, I would put her at risk and strip her of a normal childhood. So, um, kept me, that's what kept me silent. Well, I'm really happy that you came forward and told her. What was it like to start that recovery process? Um, to start that recovery process, God, it was the biggest thing. It was the biggest decision of my life. Um, I had to, uh, I just thought, you know, everyone I seen in the media when it came to people talking about child sexual abuse, they were in their like 40s or 50s and have been years and years and years after they, um, they ever, it happened to them. And I just thought, God, I want to be, I want to recover at 20, not at 40. You know, I want to sort of get this out of the road and, and live my life. So yeah, it, it was one of the biggest decisions I have ever had to make, but it was definitely the right decision. I mean, I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's, uh, it, your case is so rare as, as you know, because so often it's, it, it, you know, if it's, it's it's girls that are put in these positions and mm. um uh, and, and if it's boys it's usually you know unfortunately it follows a, usually a religious or cult situation yeah. and there's it's usually a, a male perpetrator abusing a, a, a young boy that's right how how i'm assuming that this must carry a lot of skepticism with people right or they don't take these things seriously they don't go well you were a, a boy you know you were a teenager so are you sure you didn't create this how do you fight that stigma because obviously the i mean i can just think about you know i know that sexual assault and abuse is big in australia unfortunately yeah and i know it's big in the united states as well and i think a lot of people would discount it so how do you compel people to understand that this is something that is very serious. Yeah. Well, that is um, actually the thinking that you just brought up there, Collier. That's the thinking of my father. So I deal with that stigma every day. Um, uh, not that I'm in contact with my dad, but knowing that that's his way of thinking, it breaks my heart and it's a real punch in the guts every time. But um, yeah, it's. I think the statistics speak for itself. And you're right, in Australia, it's a massive conversation right now. There was, um, in uh, April of this month, of this year, sorry, there was uh, the first ever Australian child maltreatment study. And it found that one in three girls and one in five boys will experience child sexual abuse before their 18th birthday. Um, it equates to 28.5% of our population. They're massive numbers. They're staggering. It's a few kids every classroom. Um, I and you know it. It's an issue that breeds in silence. It breeds in shame, and the only way that we can uh, sort of combat that is by speaking out about it. 
So as I said before, it's one of the hardest things to speak about. But the fact of the matter is, is that discomfort that people feel really does incite change. Um, it's necessary for the progress. And um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's sexual assault as, as an umbrella sort of piece. It's, it's, a nas- it's a national conversation that we have in, in Australia quite regularly. And um, our politicians and, you know, need to get on board and, you know, the media needs to make sure that they're writing the stories right and they're not sensationalizing them. It's a, yeah, we need to create a society where victims and survivors are put first and they're supported. Yeah, I would think that this, I mean, I've seen a lot of Australian media. (laughs) I Sky News comes to mind. There's a lot of sensationalism that goes on there. How, okay, so your father, how did that conversation happen with him? How, how did all how, like how did all this blow up? How did it finally yeah. come to light that this is your daughter, this is what's been happening? How, talk yeah. a little bit about that. So yeah, it's when I was 19. Um, so they decided, or when I say they, my stepmother decided to take my daughter and flee the country. One day out of the blue, I think she must have planned it, but one day she just left the apartment and uh, let yeah was gone. Um, my my father was obviously abusive, and to throw his focus off off her leaving the country, she sent an email to him, falsely accusing me of rape, and I got that email sent to me. Um, I still have it. Um, he's, he forwarded it on to me and my mother. And that's when my mother called me and said, what's like, what's, what's going on? That's when I had to open up. And that's when, you know, I came forward to my mom. I remember we were in the car. We were waiting for my sister to finish her dancing lesson. And I told her before my sister got in the car and I, I'd never seen her face turned so white like it it I think she had a sort of suspicion that something was going on but she didn't think it would be like that like she thought there was um she thought my stepmother was doing something behind my father's back but she never thought it was something like that um so it was absolutely harrowing and uh that's sort of how it all blew, blew up and my father's response were, initially was initially was the supportive sort of mode, but since then my stepmother must have gotten in his ear and uh, coerced him of a different story because now I know the story he tells and it's the furthest thing from the truth ever. Um, and it's obviously come from her and he still flies over to the Philippines to see her um, quite regularly. So it's just a total disregard of me and, and my story. And uh, yeah, that's just how it goes. And I still... You know, there's been times where he turns up to where I work um, and, yeah, really intimidates me. And there's been times where he gets, he runs a, he runs a business and he gets his employees to call me and send me texts all the time saying, I know the truth and your story is not, you're not telling the truth and stuff like that. So, I mean, I've got all the evidence of it on my phone and yeah, it's, it's just a continuing battle. I, yeah. Have you had to call the cops on him? Um, 
I have made reports, but it's never been in their view so severe that it warrants anything like a like a what we call an AVO here. Um, okay, so, and yeah. that would be a restraining order over here. Yeah, that's right. Okay, I, th- I think they're similar. I think that's what it is over there. Yeah. Um, okay. But yeah, similar sort of nature. They can't come within a sort of certain radius of you. Is that what a restraining order is over there? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So that's what an AVO is here. Um, yeah, it's never been anything to the extent, but his presence is more I- intimidating than anything he's ever actually done. And the fact that he goes and tells people, I'm a liar and I've made it all up and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's um, it's not not a good situation to be in, but yeah, it is what it is. Well, I'm sorry about that too. I would, if he was at my place, yeah. I would go say some words. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> there's so many there's so many levels so so levels right there's so many layers to everything and that's why it's so hard to explain my story in sort of one hit yeah so okay so she leaves the country with your daughter yep it it, is is your daughter also well she's not your sister i mean she's not your sister um, it's, it's it's all weird it's just yeah. it's so it's so hard to quantify it but so she leaves with your daughter and then you've had no contact whatsoever and she's no, just so that, cut. that's when i was 19 i'm 23 now and and i'm assuming you've you have you tried to reach out to them initially i did um would send emails and stuff like that when this is before i went to the mental health facility or the rehab was before I went to there. And they advised me that there's nothing I can really do now. Um, the doctors and psych- like psychiatrists when I was there, there's nothing I can do. You need to heal. You need to put your priorities. For it. Do not reach out. Do not contact. Um, yeah, because if I wanted to contact my daughter, there's there's two things. One, I'd have to be in touch with the woman that's perpetrated this violence on me that I would just, I would never be able to heal. I would be constantly triggered. And then the other layer to it is there's a little girl there that didn't ask for any of this. And imagine finding out who you thought was your brother is actually your father. I'm just creating another child that has a traumatic upbringing. Why should there be two children that go through in this situation that have gone through something traumatic? Um, It wouldn't be fair on her. So... The only thing in my mind that I can do is take that on and, um, yeah, try to try to heal with it. Um, and hopefully one day when she's older, she'll ask questions and we can meet then, but I don't know what the outcome's going to be. I really don't know. Well, I think that is being a good dad because you're protecting your child in a way where you're like, okay, what what do I need to do that's best for her in that situation? So I think that that is really great that you're protecting her in that sense. Thank you. I appreciate that. And that's been my thing. Yeah. Are you optimistic that one day you could have her? I mean, because obviously it seems like you're open. You would be open to telling her the truth one day and and being there for her, right? Yeah, for sure. For sure. It's... um, 
but I don't want to rob her childhood from her. No, I know. I understand. It, it's uh, it's a um, it's a delicate sort of thing. So, but yeah, definitely open one day. And it, if she's anything like me, she'll be inquisitive and ask all these questions, and yeah. she'll figure it out before I even have to tell her. So, um, yeah. Do you? I sort of went through the same similar thing. I have a I have a half sister that was born twelve days before my father was arrested for my mother's murder, yeah. and a, a lot of that the vitriol of the public centered around her mother, who was my father's mistress, and her potential involvement in my mother's murder, which is utterly fanciful in my opinion. But I often feel like you know. I would never, I never wanted her to feel that way or to feel that yeah. I had anger or this belief in yeah. her because it's such a delicate balance. Do you feel that yeah. same way that when she's old enough for her to say, look, you can't hate your mother because of this? Yeah, it's a, oh, it's a really difficult thing because, you know, uh, it, um, that is sort of asking me to defend the woman who did what she did to me. And it's a, it's a weird sort of dynamic that I've got to be totally healed before I even pursue that. You know what I mean? I, it would be, um, it could actually be really dangerous if I went into that unhealed and, and told Absolutely. my daughter certain things and, you know, she does not deserve to hear any of that. Um, which is difficult as well because I, I pursue advocacy and I'm quite public with it and, you know, the media and stuff like that, that I do with it, um, so that's a, that's another layer to it. But look, like I said, if she's anything like me, she'll figure it out before I even have to tell her. And I think she'll understand. Um, well, I hope she'll understand with, with time that that um, I tried to put her first and I, I tried to do the best I could with the cards that were dealt. I think right now it's the best of a really, really terrible situation. They're over there. They can't come back here. I'm here healing. It's sort of the best of a bad, uh, yeah, bad dealing of cards. Yeah. Yeah. It's all bad. It's all, yeah. you wouldn't wish it on your worst enemy. No, no, almost certainly not. This concludes part one of our two part episode with Harrison James. Can't wait for part two. Please subscribe to the Survivor Squad Patreon to receive exclusive early access to all episodes. On that note, Survivors, I'm Tara Newell. And I'm Collier Landry. And this is the Survivor Squad Podcast. We'll see you guys. Bye. The Survivor Squad Podcast is made possible by support from listeners just like you. Please subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And please consider supporting this program by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Survivor Squad.